We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Welcome back to part two of our fascinating conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson, the world-famous astrophysicist. And don't worry if you missed episode one, you can still listen to it by subscribing to the Thrive Global podcast in your favorite podcast app. You know, at Thrive Global, we talk a lot about wonder. In fact, we have four values, well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving. So wonder is a big deal for us. And experiencing wonder, we now know from science, truly benefits our health and well-being. Everything. In fact, there is no curiosity without wonder. So wonder is at the center of it all. And the cosmos is perhaps the easiest way to experience it. So how important is wonder to you? I don't want to imagine life without it. And because I, sit, I'm, I wonder every day about things. Scientists are often stereotyped, typically in the media, of just sitting back in the chair, legs up on the desk, commanding all knowledge of the world, and then some new idea surfaces. And what does the article say? Like, well, that'll send the scientists back to the drawing board, upsetting the apple card and disrupting their cherished theory. No, first of all, if you're an active scientist, you are always at the drawing board. You're all, you find the place where our ignorance of the universe is most profound and that attracts you. Because at some point, you have to learn to love the questions themselves because the answers are not always forthcoming. So it's the search that gets you there. But in all cases, what's driving you is the wonder. It's, wow, I, I wonder how that works and why. And will we ever know? Am I asking the right questions? Am I bringing the right methods and tools to bear onto that question? All of this is wonder. And it, it gives a sense of, of meaning and purpose to that investment of energy. So, yeah, I don't know where I would be. And then I think about it and I say, how about people that have to worry about where their next meal is coming from? Like, can they, do they wonder? Yeah, their wonder is, I wonder where my next meal is coming from. And I'm thinking, no, that's not how wonder, that word should be applied. Let's make sure everyone is fed and housed. Then we can all participate in the wonder of the universe itself. But actually participating in wonder, even when we are struggling, helps with our resilience. I mean, we see um, writings from people in concentration camps who still maintained a sense of wonder, and that helped them survive or that helped them find meaning even in the darkest hour. Yeah, so I guess I, I'm under, understating what role it can continue to play almost no matter your plight. It's perhaps wonder, no matter where you are or what your circumstances may be, wonder is a window from where you are to where you want to be, no matter where, what that location is. So I, I'll give you that. That's that, beautiful. That. And it also has this amazing childlike quality to it. And one of your quotes that I love is about that. You said, we spend the first year of a child's life teaching it to walk and talk and the rest of its life to shut up and sit down. Right. And in a sense... <laughs> Maybe that's one of the reasons why wonder has been devalued in our society, because it's seen as something childish, something for children who ask a lot of questions. I think I'm a particularly childish adult. So, for example, you know, I'm a member of several boards, very important boards, where very important people 
show up at these things, heads of agencies and this sort of thing. And boardrooms, the chair always like swivels, right? So I always have to like swivel on the chair. (laughs) I want to lift my legs up and just swivel. And I, you know, a couple of times in a circle. And you're not supposed to do that at a board meeting. And, but I, I feel the urge to, and usually I just do. And I don't care what they think of me. It's what I feel like doing in that moment. And because so, these are big, fancy, expensive office chairs that all and they all <laughs> swivel. So it could be that it's a childlike is considered bad, but maybe it's because it's absent once it's beaten out of us that it's no longer associated with adulthood. Because when I think of science and scientists, I think of kids who never lost their curiosity and wonder and then woke up one day as adults with the very same sense of of search for what is and what is not true in the world and just we we as adults we happen to have better tools than kids do but i think adults are just grown up kids still asking questions you're also a dad as well yes, as being yes, yeah, yeah. the sexiest astrophysicist so that alive. Was, that was 40 pounds ago, the sexiest <laughs> astrophysicist. just want to clarify that from your introduction. Second, second, I don't get big-headed about it because I, I it was, notice I was rated sexiest astrophysicist alive. In that same issue of People magazine, the cover was the sexiest man alive. That was Brad Pitt. Okay. Well, that's not a bad category. company to be in. Transcending category. And there's some other like competitive categories that that astrophysics was not. So, for example, there's sexiest action star, sexiest news anchor, sexiest athlete. <laughs> These are competitive categories. All right. So I did not get big headed after that. One other thing. You mentioned the asteroid with my name on it. Thanks for that. But I just want to clarify. Uh, last I checked, it's not headed towards Earth. You you don't want to be that asteroid. You want no, to have your name no, no, on that no, no, asteroid. No, no. But that- also, I wouldn't expect you to because I'm sure you're always ascending higher, <laughs> never never going downwards. So back to you being a dad. What did you learn from your children's sense of wonder? Uh, so what I did was I and my wife. My wife has a, a PhD in mathematical physics. So I'm sure your pillow talk is fascinating. <laughs> 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 so, so yeah, geeky pillow talk, right? That'd be a whole book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what do geeks say to one another to turn each other on, right? Is that is that what you want to know here? Exactly. I would love to. I would love to publish it on Thrive Global. <laughs> that would be Ariana after hours. Yeah, that's another. That's a different podcast. No, Ariana. Ariana in the dark. In the dark. Um, so, um, and I forgot what we talked. What were we talking about? <laughs> The, We're talking about your children and wonder. Oh, children. Yeah, so <laughs> what we tried to do is make sure that their curiosity was never squashed, that it was, uh, you don't even have to encourage it because it's already there. You just get out of the way of it. And some manifestation of this, I'll just give a perfect example. Um, let's say there's a, a, let me back up, between zero and three, I would say half of the manifested curiosity of the child will kill itself, Okay. What is the ledge? What what's happening at the le- at this ledge? Let me go. What is this knife? All right. So you want to prevent them from killing themselves, but beyond that, what they do when they manifest their curiosity just makes a mess of the house. But you didn't have kids on the expectation that your house will never be messy. Children are entropy centers. All they ever do is disrupt and dismantle and destroy whatever is in their way. 
We know this. So the question is, how much will you let them do it? Because everything they touch is a manifestation of curiosity, whether or not they put it back together again. So so here's a, here's a slightly contrived example, but it's, it's clear. Let's say there's an egg. You're about to make an omelet, and you put the egg on the counter, and your child reaches up to grab the egg. What are you going to say? No, don't grab that egg. You might break it. But that's not what we do. We said, we just don't say anything. They grab the egg and they start playing with the egg. Now, you know what's going to happen here. <laughs> this is already written. Okay. What's going to happen? They're going to play with the egg and then the egg will break. This might be a child's first experience with something that is hard yet fragile. How many hard and fragile things exist in this world? Not many. The eggshell is hard yet fragile. So then it breaks, and then this yolk comes out. What's that? Ooh, there's a yellow part and a, <laughs> and a transparent part, and they'll surely dip their hands in it, right? They, they'll love it, right? And then you say, that might have been a chicken. And then it, it blows their minds. And, and so, so now there's a chicken, there's an egg, there's a yolk, <laughs> there's a thing, and you might say, well, I don't want to waste the food. But in fact, let's think of it economically. What did that egg actually cost? 20 cents? 25 cents? And what actually is the cost of education? You know what the president of Harvard once said? Derek Bach, he said, if you think the price of education is high, try the cost of ignorance. Mm. That's even higher. So right here is a child performing an experiment that you think they're just messing up the house, but in fact it was 20 cents worth of knowledge gleaned about the natural world. Mm. And when, when my daughter... She was sipping milk. We finally weaned her off the sippy cup lid, which is now dangerous because they now they got to hold it level and they got to go to their mouth so that it doesn't spill and it hardly ever works. So here it is. She reaches <laughs> for the cup and accidentally tips over the cup and all the milk spills on the table. The table has eaves, so there's a separation and it drips through the eaves and goes <laughs> on the ground and she watches the milk ooze its way towards the eave, toward the separation, and then it disappears. Well, where did it go? So then she leaned over and looked under, she's still in a high chair, looks down and sees the milk drip down. And so I think most parents would have at that point said she's not ready for the sippy cup and cleaned it up. So I didn't. I just poured another cup. And then now she, on purpose, accidentally knocks it over <laughs> to see that happen again. And then she discovers gravity. It's gravity! It's an experiment <laughs> in fluid dynamics. The, the liquid does not cross the gap in the table. It goes through the gap. Gravity pulls it down. This is an occasion to observe the operations of nature. And I think more parents can, can and should. I'm not going to tell parents what to do, but let me offer this as a suggestion. That yes, you have to clean that up. Because they're not going to clean it up. But... There was a curiosity being expressed in that conduct. Had she tipped it over and then not looked under the table, that meant she wasn't curious and she's just being annoying. But the fact that she followed the liquid, it's this kind of freedom that we gave our kids. And so that by the time they were 12 and 13, I certified them scientifically literate because they were curious about the world. And if you said something, even as an adult, that didn't quite make sense to them, they, they'll ask you. They'll ask you. you. If you say, well, I think this, they'll say, well, why do you think so? Have you thought about it this way? And if you did that this other way, it wouldn't do what you said it does. Why not? They'll have this conversation. In the early teens, they would have this conversation with an adult because you would be on a chance saying something that did not match their observations of the world. And you could be saying, well, these crystals will heal you magically. And they'll say, well... 
did have you tried it? And what what is the evidence? And can you show demonstrate that here? Because that would be outside of their life experience. They would be asking questions. Half of science literacy is even knowing how to ask questions in the first place. And when they hit that point, certified, I was done. <laughs> I don't care what grade you got after that. I knew they were inoculated against all future charlatans that might try to exploit any person's ignorance of the way nature works for their own financial gain. It sounds as though sorry, they would also... No, I love it. It to... sounds as though they would also have been inoculated against all future Trump candidates. <laughs> They're inoculated against any... Again, so they would question any adult who made a statement that was not supportable or justifiable by any kind of legitimate observation that they've made in their lives. And of course, when they're 12 and 13, they still have much more life to live. But still, uh, so it wouldn't matter. I mean, relatives come over and say, well, what's your sign? And it's like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you, what? You know, and so that, so there they, they, they proceed. So yeah, that would affect who they vote for, for sure. If you are scientifically literate and the, and the search for the truth and obtaining the truth actually matters in your life, an objective truth that exists whether or not you believe in it. Right. It affects citizenship and it affects civilization civilization and the prevalence of fake news that we are suffering from right now. Well, you know, so this thing about fake news, I, I, I can I offer my analysis of this? Absolutely. Yeah, so I think the Internet got away from us in the following sense. The, we developed these powerful tools of searching the world for knowledge, information, and there was no tandem training in your school years to teach you how to process that information, how to analyze that information, how to pass judgment on information. This is the role that editors would play at, the, at publishers. They, they wouldn't publish anything anybody wrote. They would have to pass some muster among people more learned than you are on a topic. So they'd send it out for review and this sort of thing. There's no such filter on the internet. And that's kind of what makes the internet a beautiful thing. But it increases what must be considered your role of civic duty in your analysis of this information. So in K through 12, we should not think of ourselves as, think of the students as vessels that you unzip the head pour information in, have them regurgitate it at every exam, zip it back up, slap a diploma on them and say, you are now educated. Excuse me, yes, knowledge is an aspect of education, but a big, I think a more important aspect of knowledge is capacity to interpret knowledge. To take data, turn it into information, turn information into knowledge, and ultimately turn knowledge into wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that trajectory... I don't see getting taught in school. So we are helpless putty in the hands of any nefarious forces operating on the internet. And I don't want to blame people for this susceptibility. If you didn't have training behind it, as an educator, I always think of education as the solution, not beating you over the head after it's too late as the solution. So so that's one. That's a concern I have. And then there's the obvious one where you type in a, any cockamamie idea that you happen to have, and it'll find the seven other websites in the world that share your view, <laughs> and this validates in your mind your worldview. And there ought to be some sidebar that says, it is highly unlikely that anything you're reading right now is true or was ever true. That's a caution. Continue with your freedom of... <laughs> now, 
proceed. All right. So some some measure of the likelihood of something being true. The the URL has some indication of it. Is it a .gov, a .edu? Is it a university where there are always checks and balances in place? Is it somebody's website in their garage? That's a first pass at this, but I think we need help that we don't currently have. And basically, given that uh, we cannot give up on people who do not have that education, how can we create a system, a kind of new version of Wikipedia even, that can actually provide that sidebar? Yeah, I I don't know. You know, I'm, it's always easier to cite a problem than to solve it. So I'm not, I'm guilty of that in this moment. But and uh, in, in the curriculum, you have to go back into the curriculum, fix it, convince school boards, because in the United States, education is local, not national. So school boards would have to be convinced of this. Meanwhile, there's the 30 years of a generation of people who are 20 years who grew up with the internet who have some of this susceptibility. So I, I don't have this silver bullet, but I, I do have hope that this next generation, age 25 and under, maybe as high as 30 and under, they've only known life with a smartphone. The smartphone, they know, even if they don't understand, they know that it involves GPS, which involves space-borne satellites to tell you when to make a left turn to visit grandma's house. They know that it involves innovations in programming, information technology, engineering, physics. They know this. And so I don't see as many people in that generation, however susceptible as they are to fake news. And by the way, I think the most susceptible generation was not them, but the older folk were more susceptible to the fake news than the younger folk who kind of grew up with a little bit of skepticism about the Internet. Um, I think the that generation, uh, though may have some susceptibility to fake news, they're not standing in denial of what role science has played, is playing, and must continue to play if we are going to assure our health and our wealth and our security in the 21st century. The danger with the millennial generation is more being addicted to their smartphones. We all are a little bit addicted, but Tristan Harris, who is actually here with us in the studio, who um, has come up with this incredible analysis of how social media companies, others in the attention economy that we are living in, have an incentive to hijack more and more of our attention, more and more of our lives. So it's almost like a competition between all the forces making us look down into our phones uh, all the time and what you are doing, which is saying, look up, look at the cosmos. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I couldn't believe uh, some city where the Pope was going by in, in the Pope mobile, and there's everyone looking at the video image of their smartphone of the Pope going by. And I thought to myself, what? <laughs> this is the Pope going by, people, and now... All you will have is your memory of holding this up, looking at a video image of the Pope, when you could be looking at the Pope yourself, creating an actual neurosynaptic image of what was happening. And I'd like to think that there are some memories that are best simply remembering them, provided they came into you with enough force and enough feeling and enough emotional uh, pres- emotional, yeah. emotional uh, expression within you then that becomes your life, not the three-inch video screen that you now load up into your four-terabyte disk and never look at again. So I, now again, I don't want to sound like old fogey. Back in my day, we had a bit. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy, okay? And so, but I'd love to hear about the, the attention economy. In fact, it sounds terrifying, scary. 
there's this sort of belief that technology is this neutral tool and we can use it however we want. And uh, when I was a design ethicist at Google... That's a thing? That was a thing. Design uh, ethicist? Well, it was cool. briefly a thing. Not on your business card? Uh, never on a business card. Oh, you but had to. Was, that would have been... That's a badass business it's card. A, it's, a cool, it's a cool name. Um, and it's really just interested in what is the ethical way to, pers- to persuade or steer billion people's minds? Because if you're a designer at you know, Apple, Google, or Facebook, you know, your choices inevitably are going to send people's thoughts in one direction or another. Uh, you know, did, if you're, did you major in philosophy? There's a philosophy of ethics. Is that what's, uh, in ma- I majored actually in computer science, but, okay. um, yeah. All right. But I, you know, I'm really interested in what, what though is the ethics, it's sort of an, a new kind of ethics mm-hmm. of, of, you know, steering a billion people one direction or another in terms of what they're thinking, believing about the world. And like you said, you know, with, with, uh, News feeds, uh, you know, in, in an election year when 50% of the U.S. population's number one source of news was Facebook, um, then it's just it's in the handful of these designers and these engineers and how they set up this this ordering of, of stories. Whatever goes into that that set of stories is what people are going to be thinking and believing about the world, and they can choose within the set of stories what to click, but they don't question why are these the things that I'm being given and not others. They don't see that there was thousands of other things that could have been there. Plus, remind me, my list of clickable stories is different from your list of clickable stories. Exactly. Based on some algorithm with someone judging what they think I want to know versus what you might want to know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's this view that, you know, Facebook must be neutral because we're the ones choosing what we post and we're the ones choosing who we follow. But actually, it's not true because of the thousands of things that they could show you, Facebook wants to show you the things that are going to be most engaging. So they're better off if they confirm your beliefs about the world and if they challenge your beliefs about the world, they would lose less, they would have less attention. And their business model depends on the attention economy on getting as much attention as possible. So we end up with these feeds that are better and better at confirming our worldviews, offering simplistic stories, shorter news stories, and not necessarily what's true or complex or challenging, like you're saying with science. And also thousands of engineers in all these companies are really good at knowing how to grab your attention. Are they any different, though, from the advertising industry? Because mm-hmm. think back to the founding fathers. Someone whispered in their ear that in the centuries to come of this new country they just invented, that there will be forces operating that can influence how you think and who you vote for without you even necessarily being self-aware of it. And it's called advertising. Yeah. We accept it in car ads and cigarette ads back in the day. And anything else that's on television, advertising what you should like and not like, influencing your desires. Mm-hmm. Do you think they might have d- designed the country differently to protect us against that? Or would they celebrate that people would have power over your mind? I yeah. don't know. Well, it's interesting. In, in the 1940s, there was the Institute for Propaganda Analysis and uh, the, the Committee for National Morale, which was set up to defend the American public from foreign propaganda because they specifically the recognized- yeah, because yeah. they specifically recognized that that the democratic, they call it the democratic personality, that a mind had to have enough of its own sort of certain functions. One would be openness to new information. If you don't, if, if you couldn't dispassionately say, what would convince me otherwise, then a mind is actually not operating democratically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you're truly open-minded, then there should be at least something that could right. convince you of even something crazy. Mm-hmm. But um, and so they tried to protect uh, this this kind of working of what is a democratic mind, and I think there 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 needs to be more of a conversation about what is a, a mind that works in a democracy. I think I saw on the Daily Show they asked uh, Trump supporters at a rally, "What would it take to get you to vote for Hillary?" Mm-hmm. They said nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. 
So that's that's the yeah. non-open mind, a new idea. That's the closed mind. Yeah. And also, um, that's the mind that's close to big ideas. And one of the big ideas that you've talked about is spirituality. And there is this assumption that science and spirituality are at odds, even mutually exclusive. And yet you've said... Uh, that when I say spiritual, I'm quoting you here, I'm referring to a feeling you would have that connects you to the universe in a way that it may defy simple vocabulary. We think about the universe as an intellectual playground, but the moment you learn something that touches an emotion rather than just something intellectual, I would call that a spiritual encounter with the universe. I said I, all that? Wow, you do. You're a really <laughs> eloquent guy. As well as, let me remind our listeners, being the sexiest astrophysicist alive. 40 pounds ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us about that. Do you sort of seek that spiritual feeling? Um, how do you define it? Is it something yeah, that you... I, I, don't, I try not to go around defining words just for my own purpose, because words have meaning. And when they're received by others... It comes with whatever they think the word is versus what you thought the word is. And if those don't match, then you're not actually communicating. So the word spirituality, broadly, among many people, actually connects them back to their religious texts or their their divine engagements. And, and so I, I get that and I respect that. What I'm saying is that if there's something that you feel that transcends your intellectual investment of yourself... I'd like to, I want to use that word, if you'll allow me the the latitude to borrow that word, spirituality. And a spirit, I think, originally from, is it from the Greek meaning breath or Latin? It's your spirit is your breath. And so if something takes your breath away because you, it's beyond account, uh, it's something you experience rather than think about, I'm, I call that a spiritual encounter with the universe. And I do that without hesitation. The problem is when people say, oh, you're spiritual, that means what holy book do you read and what rules do you abide by from the holy book that we think you're going to... And no, no, it's less it's less uh, rigid than that. And of course, a lot of scientists had a spiritual perspective. And that's what I, lo- I loved reading Arthur Kessler's book on creation, where he described a lot of scientists even... And experiences in coming up with their scientific conclusions and the spiritual connection. Well, so what you can do is you can say, I think I'm reading the mind of God. and But it doesn't actually require God for you to still have that feeling. You can say, I, I want to get to the meaning of the universe itself. Mm-hmm. You can swap God with universe. Yes. And many of those sentences read exactly the same way. Or you can quote Neil deGrasse Tyson, who said, that you should not be walking the streets without a baptism in cosmic perspective, which for me <laughs> Well, you is, get all those quotes from... What, uh, I now, love now them. I can send you, them to do you. you. Stalk, are you. Do you stalk me? <laughs> <laughs> are you tiptoeing yes, behind me? You are constantly in my feed, which is a good thing about <laughs> me, right? <laughs> I would want that in my feed. 20 um, years ago, what would that have meant? <laughs> you're you're in my feed. <laughs> We are now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number, because a good sleep routine is the foundation for thriving. Today's sleep tip is to read before bed, but read something not on a screen and something that has nothing to do with work. Read a chapter from a classic novel, a poem, a story in a magazine, or a passage from a history book. 
Letting ourselves get drawn into a narrative helps us transition from our day-to-day projects and worries. In fact, studies have shown that reading for as few as six minutes releases stress and tension in our bodies. This sleep tip was brought to you by the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed that adjusts to you. Learn more about it at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. So tell us about that cosmic perspective. And is that something that you feel every day? Uh, is it something that you feel in other contexts beyond yeah, that, the cosmos? Sure, sure. So the, I reserved a, a discussion of the cosmic perspective for the last chapter of the book, and it's called Reflections on the Cosmic Perspective. It's something that I and all my astrophysics colleagues, we have every day of our lives, just pure and simple. And I don't think we remind ourselves enough of how many people don't have a cosmic perspective and that we should do something about that. Mm. A cosmic perspective is, is, is a potent way to dismantle your own ego or the hubris of what we carry as humans and reassemble it into something that changes your outlook on who and what we are in this universe. So here we are talking about the molecules in your body and they're traceable to to stars that have given their lives and and we're in the universe, the universe is in us. Notice that that awareness arises because we are revealing that we're not different from the universe, we're the same as the universe. We humans among ourselves have extraordinary genetic overlap in who we are as humans. And so that makes us connected to all our fellow 7 billion citizens of this earth. So that we are special because we are a connected entity, not because we are different. We have chemistry that you would find in aliens you might discover on another planet because chemistry moves across the galaxy and across the universe and across time. So it is special because we have a kinship with yet-to-be-discovered life, a chemical kinship. So a cosmic perspective unravels whatever ego you have thinking you're special because you're different and then asserts for you using evidence that you are special because you are the same. And it doesn't only have to come from the universe. It can come from biology. So, for example, in one centimeter of your lower colon lives and works as many microbes, as many bacteria as the total number of all humans who have ever been born. But we'd like thinking of ourselves as greater than bacteria. Mm. Of course, we're greater. We're humans, and they're just single-celled organisms. Yet, if you get those bacteria upset, then they're in charge of your life. (laughs) They will send you to the bathroom every seven (laughs) minutes, okay? So first of all, there's there's that. There are occasions where they're in charge of you. But who are you to them? You to them, however big your ego is, all you are to them is a dark vessel of anaerobic fecal matter. That's all you are to them. And like I said, if you get them upset, they'll tell you so. But more important, both of you, both of us, we and the bacteria need one another. They do our digesting for us. Without them, we would not have a digestive tract. Without us... They would have no place to live. So rather than think of ourselves as above and beyond the bacteria, why not think of ourselves as participants in the story of life? And when you realize that, 
You can't run around saying I'm different because I'm human and I'm better and you're not human, you're some other animal, you are less than I am. We are participants in this in this ecosphere. And the, the, the sooner we learn that, the more we can get busy figuring out how to make sure this ecosphere remains intact. We are borrowing it from our descendants. When they inherit it, they can think highly rather than badly of their ancestors as being good shepherds rather than bad of their fate. So are you able to keep this cosmic perspective even, let's say, when you're stuck in traffic <laughs> or um, a slow-moving line in the grocery yeah, store. Yeah, so you're stuck in traffic, and the cosmic perspective is uh, Earth from space, you can't even see streets. So I'm here on this spec. It, it limits how seriously you can take anything that's happening in front of you. I interviewed Bill Clinton for my radio show, Star Talk. And he, he said on you his... interviewed me, too. I did. It was a beautiful thing. I have a quick story about that, too. I want to share with you and your listeners especially. But Bill Clinton, so he says when he's had tough negotiations with people from around the world, they're sitting around this table. It was in the Oval Office or wherever they have the big important meetings. In the middle of the table, he borrowed a rock from the moon from NASA. The moon rock in the middle of the table. And whenever their conversation got sticky, sticky and a little uncomfortable, he said, pause. That rock came from the moon. There's who? Oh. <laughs> it just wow. resets the conversation. Ah, yeah. And it it just kind of loosened things up and say that's a perspective for you. Yeah. All right, now let's get back to talk about the line in the sand that we've drawn and these people want to kill these other people, but that's from the moon. So he said it brought him great um, negotiating uh, latitude. Just in terms of how seriously you were taking your argument versus the goal state that you wanted to arrive at. Now, the quick story, when you were on my radio show, I must, you drank from one of the glasses. I had a cosmic glass with moons and planets on it. And your lipstick to this day <laughs> remains on that glass. We have not washed that glass. And when people look at the old, I have all kinds of stuff on my shelves. And there's this one, oh, what is that? Oh, there's lipstick. Who's I said that's Ariana Huffington's lips. <laughs> and when there's conflict negotiations, you put the glasses. Put the the glass. This is Ariana Huffington's lips right here. And I can tell you this: we the secret to Middle East peace. If you go away, if you're ever abducted by aliens, we're going to clone you from that <laughs> lipstick, and we'll make another Ariana Huffington, and you can keep it, keep this thing going. For philosophers throughout the ages, you know, I'm Greek, so the ancient philosophers are something, this stuff, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. we kind of invented that stuff. They're like our Kardashians, you know, <laughs> uh, only not quite as fun-loving, though they did also hang out a lot on beautiful islands, so there's a similarity there. Um, anyway, one of the tools philosophers have always used to give us perspective is the cosmos, but another is death. So does the cosmos make you think more about death and the nature of time and your own time on Earth? Yes. Oh, all the time. So for me, people have asked me, if you could live forever, would you? And I'd say, no, no, I don't think so. That doesn't attract me. Well, why not? Sorry, I'm having this own conversation with myself, but <laughs> if I've had this conversation, I'm sharing it with you. Uh, because the knowledge that I'm going to die gives meaning to the days that I'm alive. And it gives purpose. When I wake up in the morning, I say, there are things I have yet to accomplish and I'm going to redouble my efforts to do so. If I knew I was gonna live forever, what's the hurry? 
Why, where you, just take your time. What's your urge? And so the valuation of a finite life so structures and gives meaning to the days that I have that I can't imagine life without that knowledge, the knowledge of my own demise. So, so that's my first reflection here. A second is when I die, I, I want to be buried, not cremated. Your body has an energy content from its molecules that has been assembled ever since you were a child, ever since you've been breastfed, right? Your, your, your body, or bottle-fed, your body grew from these nutrients, creating molecules, more molecules, different molecules. These, all these molecules have an energy content to them supplied by the calories of the flora and fauna, or if you're vegetarian, just flora, that you've consumed throughout your life. When I die... That energy content is still there in my body. I want to be buried so that I can be dined upon by flora <laughs> and fauna in death, just as I have dined on flora and fauna in life, thus completing the biological cycle of life on this earth. If you cremate yourself, if people cremate you, what happens to the energy of your body? It burns. That's what burning is. It is the release the exothermic release of energy from molecules that had energy contained within them. And that energy is still in the universe, but it gets, sort of radiates to the atmosphere. The atmosphere radiates it to space, and it's of no use to anybody in that state. It's just sort of photons moving through the vacuum of the universe. Whereas if you keep it on Earth, it still can serve the lives of others, in this case, the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. So uh, this this that's a perspective I bring to my life from the cosmos. It's a cosmic perspective for me. I'm kind of thrilled that I have found one thing to disagree with you. Because oh, no, 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 I would on. like to be cremated. Because I want that exothermic release of energy when <laughs> I die. But uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, I'm Greek Orthodox, actually does not allow cremation. Mm, because they believe actually in what you believe. Um, um, I don't know how they, whether they would express it as eloquently, but basically they they only allow burial. But I would like to invite our. Um, wait, wait, but you you're you, but you're saying we disagree. But I still want to be cremated against because the wishes I'm a, of your religious because traditions. Because I'm basically a, a rebel. But I would like to ask our listeners to let us know whether they would prefer to be buried or cremated. Mm-hmm. Let's have another debate. Well, no, I don't want to. <laughs> well, no, I'm not telling other people to do it. I'm just saying, but I'm, just because I have a personal thing doesn't mean I require that of others. I have plenty of opinions. I never tell anybody because I don't give a rat's ass if you agree with my opinions. But as an educator, I have knowledge and facts that I right, share with you. Right, and you are sharing why you prefer that. Oh, yeah, I showed why. But that doesn't mean I'm coming after you because if you <laughs> wanted to get cremated, go right There's ahead. There's a long list of reasons to come after us before that. <laughs> Thank you, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for being our guest and to everybody for listening. And be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on more episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. 
We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com/thrive.